Hey, Ruth. Hey, Rachel. You want to take a trip to Lovecraft Country? Tell me about your William Christina hypothesis. Okay, so at four o'clock in the morning, on Monday morning, I wake up and I'm like, oh my god, glory is Ben and Ben is glory. Which... I'm assuming you've watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer fifth season in which she goes up against Glory, who's this like ancient goddess evil thing. And there's also Ben, who's just this nice, friendly nurse. My brain suddenly put together how we'd never seen them overlap. So William does tasks that might demean her, such as welcoming people and otherwise being hospitable when she wants to appear powerful and reserved and keep herself as something a little bit special and different. William gives people hints and ideas and allows them to be manipulated in a way that doesn't feel like Christina is directly manipulating them so she can come in as the second person. But then here, we see the example of Christina's getting followed by these police, and she goes into the house, comes right back out as William, and beats them up. Which is hella delightful, honestly. Of course, she can get into the bar and approach Ruby in a way that Christina as, like, Skinny little white woman could never approach Ruby. Although, uh, I, I do think that the use of the music, You Put a Spell on Me, is important there. I don't know how I feel about this. I would like it to be more directed at me. Maybe we'll see that. But if this is the case, mm-hmm. William used Ruby to gain access to the house. That's what I initially thought, but no. I realized he took Ruby back to the house that Christina was in. So it was not the boarding house? It wasn't, no. Oh. Right? And that it's hard to tell. I think Christina knows that she can't get in with Tick and she can't get in with Letty. Like, Letty sees her for what she is. And so she comes up with a different way of coming at Ruby, figuring out what Ruby wants, and then figuring out how she can make her an offer with magic to get it, right? Because if she sleeps with William, and then she finds out that actually also he's Christina, she's going to have this moment where she learns that so much more is possible. And so using magic not as this horrifying, scary thing that the others have encountered, maybe, but as this thing that could change her world, but maybe, maybe with a cost. And that's what scares me for Ruby in the next episode. Oh, so the carrot. Yes, exactly. That she's going to be enticed into things, not that she's going to be forced into things. That's a lot, yo. Yeah. And that is just a tiny, tiny bit of the plot line. No, it's super tiny. The Christina part of the plot line is almost the smallest. The Hippolyta sideline is is the tiniest. Oh, yeah. There's somebody else I'm worried about, right? Hippolyta. Wait, next on my agenda. Yes. Is Tree. (laughs) Now. Right? (laughs) So when I first saw Tree, they're getting in the car. Mm -hmm. Everybody's coming. They're having an emotional family moment about going on this trip and everyone's kind of angry. And then just Tree just walks up and he's going with them. Yeah. (laughs) My first thought was, it's a red shirt. He's going to (laughs) die. That's what confused me about this episode. And I put that at the very end of my agenda, which was just, and what about Tree? He didn't get back to Chicago. We don't see, he's he's apparently still in Boston as far as we know. I assume he's still going to go down to see his girl in Philly. 
maybe tree is the only person who enjoyed this episode he had a nice day at the museum <laughs> he got a little bit dissed by letty but you know that's just part of how things well, are you know it's on him you know uh, yeah maybe he saw a dinosaur and then he caught <laughs> a bus down to philly saw his girl and tree is just like having a weekend of sex and relaxation in philly well, everybody else is dealing He's with like, all this Heading up that spacious Airbnb with his girl. <laughs> so in addition to going along on his trip, he has a good joke. They're in the museum and they're getting ready to do this mission. And he just walks up to them like, they got a dinosaur? Oh, I need to see this dinosaur. Which is what everyone thinks when they walk into the science museum. So Tree, he is involved in some bullshit. And he is the guy who told Tick that he better go tell Letty that you know, she's his girl or whatever. And mm-hmm. and it had implied that they had slept together. Mm-hmm. Um, which apparently Tick and Letty have discussed at this point. Yes. <laughs> so when, when Tree tries to, he's that guy. And Letitia fucking Lewis <laughs> just comes right back at him, crude as fuck. He's like, wouldn't I know that since we fucked in high school? <laughs> you <laughs> asshole. But then he also has this conversation with Tick. Yeah. Being homophobic as fuck. He was the one who sent Tick to find the bar owner mm-hmm. when he was out back having a sexual liaison with another man. He's like, I just wanted you to know. And Tick is like, the fuck? What do I care about that? And then he basically implies that Montrose is gay. Yeah. Did you feel like that was maybe going to be an important plot point for Montrose's character? Or? I mean, uh, it's possible. Mm-hmm. I will tell you what, though. When Montrose walks back after talking to the security guard, Tick is definitely looking at him like, how do you how do you know him? <laughs> Which is... Uh... Uh... He's got his like masculinity and some some pride and boundaries around that, but also he's just like, it is not my business. Like, are are you familiar with how many random things that he would have seen in the war? Right. There's one moment of when they're in the caverns, Montrose calls on his war memory and is like, mm-hmm. you don't leave any soldier behind and Whew, what a burn when Tick says I knew all those guys had my back and he's like I don't you know trust you with good cause mm-hmm. and Montrose has done all this research for years and isn't sharing and Tick's mad at him but Tick's just the same which brings me to item number three on my agenda <laughs> Letitia fucking Lewis oh, one she is so mad and so hot and those two <laughs> things might be related To quote Q from Star Trek, Did anyone ever tell you you're angry when you're beautiful? (laughs) Right. And they gave her some badass music throughout. She is stomping around, just being gorgeous and angry with due cause. And Christina comes up to her house and she answers the door. The fuck you doing here? (laughs) Fantastic. So angry. You have more feelings about Christina going to the house? I was really delighted that the house took that opportunity to show off Letty's power. Like, you expect everybody else has been coming, going, free as they please. I don't know if it's only Christina who's blocked, but Christina's definitely blocked. And just watching her bounce off the door was amazing. (laughs) And she's like, well, she's like, who did you, you know, um, Mm -hmm. have do this? And we don't get an answer at all. 
And then she goes to see Dick in the library and just oh starts God, arguing so with mad. him. She's so mad at him. I felt so much for that little kid that just wanted to like read his comics in the library. And these two adults will not mind their own business and be quiet. And this is a library. And he's like shushing him and rolling his eyes and huffing and walking off. And it was just, I was so delighted by that kid. That's the best joke of the episode, I think. As a librarian, I have often been shushed by patrons. <laughs> I forget. I work here. It turns out that college students in the library don't appreciate that. They came to the library, not for the shouting. So she comes down on him and on how his dad's probably been on this before. She's mad at him for not fucking telling her. You, we discussed this and I let it lie last week. So you said he's trying to protect her. And she's like, I already fucking died. Mm-hmm. stop it that's like the the crux of the argument that lasts throughout the episode is not about you we're all in this together yeah i really felt like they were almost a trio with the exception of you still can't trust montrose you still can't trust montrose but he has done the research mm-hmm. which we knew from discussions with george like he always been real interested in that family so he he might have even done it like I didn't get a peek at the dates on those library checkout slips. Do you want to take a moment to discuss how patron privacy impacts (laughs) plot lines in stories? I did make a note of that. It was like a really nice beat in the episode because Letty is like, your father already did all this research. And she just storms out. And then he pulls out the checkout slips. And every one of them, the last checkout is Montrose. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then he, and then he pisses off the boy again. And then he's like, all right, let me go find my, my dad at the bar. <laughs> and Letty is already talking to Montrose at the bar. Like, she's like ahead of him. Like, let's just get this over with. Did you get the feeling that she was sort of laying down siege that, you know, they said, oh, they're, they're in the back, but maybe he wanted to be out front drinking with his friends and instead Letty's come in and she sat him down at a table and she's like, all right, you are going to tell me things because you know these things. Yeah. Montrose wants to stay away from things as much as possible because there's no way to win. Right. Right. So in my notes, it says Montrose and his bullshit. And <laughs> underneath it, it says, is there a way to not play? Mm. right so he's like there's nothing we can do it's best to stay away from all of this but i'm not sure that there's a way to stay away from it realistically mantra's getting captured in that way kind of started it all off so did christina as william show up and again that's an example of a time right where christina braithwaite cannot walk into that bar and be like hello I would like to take you on a trip in my car. Like, what the fuck? That is asking for trouble. You would not walk out the door with her. But William could come in and be like, hello, sir. You know, I have some knowledge about the Braithwaites who are connected with your late wife. Yeah, it's just such a different personality. It's such a, it's a tool, right? I can't figure out if she finds William to be useful as a tool or if she finds him useful as like a character persona body that she could someday become. Oh, so another Christina point is that she is consistently playing every single side available. She has an interaction with the cops in which she plays the, you're not in the club. 
and she plays the race card with them. I can't believe that you would let this happen in your neighborhood. And then she tries to play the don't let the men do this card with Letty. I think that's all there is with her, unless you count the William part. When she is talking to the cops, she mentions a time machine. I just want that to be noted. Next on my list is Indiana Jones shit. As promised, delivered. I was writing things down like, this is some real D&D shit. This is some real Indiana Jones shit. And then he's like, this is some real Journey to the Earth type shit. And I'm like, I guess we all have our references here. So are you afraid of heights? Deadly afraid of heights. Yes. Like, I don't take mall escalators. I take the fire stairs. Are you afraid of giant swinging knives? I am afraid of giant swinging knives even when I am facing them in a video game. You can watch my physical <laughs> body, like, move back and forth, dancing around as I prepare put my Dovahkiin, you know, has to go through that thing of three different swinging knives on the, on the oh, main God. quest. and Yeah, it's such a trope, too. I hate it. How do you feel about timed levels? <laughs> I'm not big on timed levels, but you know what I really, really fucking hate? Puzzles! Puzzles, water level, timed level. Oh, my God. As soon as he read the inscription, I was like, this is a motherfucking timed level. And... <laughs> I'm not going to be able to figure this out without dying 70 times, and I'm going to break my television. (laughs) I'm going to curse. I'm going to throw my controller. I'm going to, like, go look up some cheats on the internet because I'm going to get so frustrated. So there's the time level where you have to go across the bridge, not get killed by the knife, and then figure out the puzzle to not die in the cavern. And see, that's where I would have died over and over and over again, because I'm just shit at puzzles. Like, I'm great at other stuff right until you get me to the puzzles. And it's like, okay, this is an eagle. This is a whale. This is a snake. Figure out the combo. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, I am here to play Skyrim. It is magic and swords. And so then after that, the water is still rising on the other side of the abyss cavern, which... Doesn't actually make any sense. I don't think the water was really rising on the one side, but... Okay, so, you know, they end up back in Chicago, right? I have a theory that that abyss is actually some sort of, like, dimensional portal thing. I was gonna say, did you know about the underground caverns that connected Chicago to Boston? (laughs) No, I did not. The water is rising, so we're still in uh, the second part of the timed level. And then we get to the... uh, corpses and a lock that you unlock with your blood how do you feel about dna coded well i don't know are you frightened about doors that you open by inserting your limb (laughs) so here's my nuanced answer is it blood magic because then i am surprisingly down is it dna because then absolutely the fuck not fascinating tell me more i guess the question is one if it's blood magic then you have magically cinched the je ne sais quoi of my blood and you've coded it into this or i did it because it's my blood and i want my blood to be able to open the door and there is only one other person in the world with my blood which is slightly inconvenient but he's quite old with dna though it's like kept in a computer and it could be used for anything 
And it's just like, no, I want the magic to be somehow infused into the object itself. I don't want it to be something which is synthesized, turned into data, and stored. <laughs> and then I love that, that the key doesn't open into another room, but it just drops a ladder. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Montrose gives two amazing speeches yeah. during this journey. The first is a pep talk that surpasses George's pep talk after their trial in the house. Letty is scared about walking this plank uh, across a dimensional portal, I guess. And he tells a story about where this knot came from and <laughs> that it came from his enslaved ancestor and who, who never got beat because the knot was so good at keeping the horses. And then he gives Tick, he starts out like, you got to apologize to your girl. And then he gives a, a really a moving, literally made me cry pep talk about having arguments with people that you love. Yeah. And that the argument, the fact that you're having an argument is also the love. Oh, yeah, it's so good. I was really warming up to him. Yeah. Which yeah. is why I got so pissed at the end. What did you think about his stuff in the beginning, you know, where he's listening to the radio, I believe, talk about, like, nuclear proliferation mm -hmm. and the Soviet Union and everything? I think that was a, a really great moment into Montrose's overall despair. He's looking at the bylaws. The radio is talking about the Cold War, and he is remembering Tulsa. That is just so much trauma packed into one, one experience, one moment. The episode is called A History of Violence. And I, I really felt some, guess some deep empathy with Montrose in that moment where he is deep inside trauma and he's trying to protect the people he loves by burning these bylaws, which, you know, you're just so frustrated with them, but and then you have this moment where, like, yeah, he's doing that because he thinks it's the way to protect his family. Mm -hmm. oh, and then he says, it smells like Tulsa. Oh. Yeah, he's carrying so much more trauma than just the moment. And, and he's doing all this to try and protect them. And, and Tick is trying to protect everyone else. And Letty is like, now I know where your son gets it from. <laughs> and then calls him an asshole, which I think in a family moment is really the worst curse that you're about to use. All right, so back to Indiana Jones shit. Yeah. So they climb the ladder, which brings me to my next question. Are you afraid of vaguely alive corpses? I am not a fan of vaguely alive corpses. I'll put it that way. I definitely, like, shrieked to jump back just like they did when the hand moved, <laughs> even though I knew the hand was going to move, right? I know what's going to happen. I'm still just like, ah! Yes. The whole, like, mummified banquet, to me, scarier, more shocking when the corpse is vaguely alive. And then we have this whole reveal that Tick does have the gift of languages, I guess. So they have this moment where Tick is trying to say that he's related but he's not family yeah and um then there's this line which i think it just could be unpacked forever um 
which is Yahima says, you're not guilty of your ancestors' sins, but I don't know your spirit. That line is a lot. It is a lot. Do you think, because that's, I think, something that we struggle a lot in American culture with, right? Mm-hmm. The sins of their fathers in general. Mm-hmm. But specifically racial sins is a huge issue. You hear a defense of Southerners saying, I don't own any slaves, so the slavery mm-hmm. is not on me. But it is. Because the spirit has to be not only not evil, but actively against evil. There's like three settings, right? And neutral is the same as bad. Yeah, I felt like that line hit Tick heavily. He started to feel hopeful, I think, as he and they started to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's really the shutting down, right? They sit down, put a hand over it. It's pretty much like, I don't know you. And that's all. Like, there's not like, you know, convince me moment. Because like, there's Mm -hmm. no, there's no way. Especially after having been wronged the way that Titus wronged him. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no way that unless I've known you my whole life, that I can know your spirit the way that I will need to know your spirit to make this judgment. And protecting the the pages is about not allowing them to be used in any fashion, right? right? So, like, I didn't know that, what they were going to be used for. But now that I know that they can be used for evil and i like a, a recall of the nuclear armament right we shouldn't have been doing this at all you should stop looking at this altogether. this is not a thing that anyone should know mm-hmm. all right so that was like the cut scene and now we go back to, to the action where we got to get out of here and that's because mantras grabs for it well i mean we still want the pages grab them and go take a deep breath the elevator is much closer than it was before. So they uh, they all get back to the elevator. At which point, Letitia fucking Lewis saves the day. She is our hero, not Tick. How did you feel about them like losing the pages and Letty swimming out and getting them and getting them back? Feels like too much to be like, oh, and now you drop the pages and there they go. <laughs> I thought, how much more are they going to put Journey Smollett through? Right? She's got to be acting while swimming and holding her breath. Like, and she is acting her ass off underwater. Like, how? How did you do that? So then they get back to Chicago. The end. Except for not. Yeah, so Hippolyta. Can can you just imagine that call? Like, hey, we're back in Chicago. Hey, we know we were going to meet you. Um. As it turns out. We're home. Don't worry about us. Just come home whenever. And she's already on to them. And what else has already happened? She already has the orrery. I liked that. What was it that guy in the thing said? I think he's the mechanic. He said, every locked thing has its key. 
Yeah, did you feel that was foreshadowing for Tick's arm later? Or did you feel like that was foreshadowing for something else? I think it's foreshadowing for everything. Yeah, and she's working on it. And we learned when they're in Boston in the planetarium section that she has a long, long standing interest in astronomy. Yeah. That's fascinating. And she was calling her dad. And she referenced NACA, which is uh, pre-NASA. National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Right. I wondered if her father was just someone who had a hobby in astronomy. Having a hobby in astronomy is an extremely like random Lovecraftian story background that somebody will have. There could have been like a military background. Like I just got the feeling that she had gotten her love of astronomy. You know, we see her in an early episode taking right, out Right, because from, like, from a childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if she grew up with that, then now we've got Dee, who's taking on that legacy mm-hmm. and drawing space comics. And so I wonder about that arc, right? We've got other arcs here, but... Yep. So she's got the orrery, and she knows that it's a weird orrery. Two sons. Can't figure it out. And it's broken in that it doesn't work the way she expects it to. And then after Boston, they're driving home and she looks over and she's like, is that your father's atlas? Where'd you get it from? And she sees circled. Devon County. And what'd she do? She turns the car around. <laughs> what's, where's she going? She is going to Artem. She's going to go get some answers. And ah, uh, I'm so worried. <laughs> My notes say, what? 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 (laughs) This week, I've got a reading recommendation for all you horror fans looking for another dose of the weird. Victor Laval's novella, The Ballad of Black Tom, retells Lovecraft's The Horror at Red Hook from the perspective of Tommy Tester, An entertainer, no, a scammer, a swindler, a con, who gets in over his head on the night of Robert Suenam's infamous party. Your library might have it, or pick up a copy at some not-Amazon source. An excellent audiobook version is on Libro.fm, an audible alternative which allows you to support your local bookstore while enjoying audiobooks. I'll link in the show notes to an interview where you can hear Laval talk about the book and his take on Lovecraftian horror. This isn't an ad, so if you do sign up for Libro.fm, just look for your favorite bookstore or, if there isn't one close to you, a Black-owned bookstore and put them in as your referrer. Do you want to talk about the end of the episode or do you want to talk about Ruby? Ooh, let's talk about the end of the episode first because I'd rather talk about Ruby. (laughs) So... They ride the elevator up, and then they're just in the house. So what they do is they um, they put Yahima in the room where the orrery was. This is not a good room. Uh, it's a room of creepiness. Because the things that we've seen happen in this room with the card table, the orrery was there, those white mm-hmm. boys got murdered, and then Yahima is in this room. Hick and Letty just go off and leave them with Montrose? Well, Montrose and Tick have a real tearful father-son, proud of you, I'm not, I'm not going to cry moment. And then Montrose is, I guess, to head out and go back home. But he does not. He goes into the room and he slits Yahima's throat. 
So this made you angry. Yeah, this made me angry on, I guess, a couple of, on like, at least three levels. So first, I was angry because Yahima's this ancient person who's been... I mean... Not ancient, yeah, okay, a couple hundred years old, though. If they asked, hey, I am out of time, I am away from my people, or made some other indication to that effect, I would not have a problem with someone saying, yes, I will help you die because... Like, if you do not want to be here now, we can arrange that. That wouldn't have bothered me. But, so I was mad from a uh, just a pure practical standpoint, right? Like, they went to all this trouble, they got the pages, but they also brought this person out who might have other knowledges and might become someone who could become part of their team or provide guidance or her perspective or anything. And no, Montrose cuts that off. I was mad because I wanted more story from this character and Montres cut that off. And I was mad because I'm like, oh, come on. Also, trans characters often get now. Yeah, he was not exactly trans. They're two spirit. But it just bring up and killed him right in the first episode. I'm like, ugh. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess like three levels go in there. See, it didn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me because it's completely in character with the way that Montres has been acting from really from the moment we met him mm -hmm. he does not want to have to deal with this this act to me in his mind is the same as setting that book on fire so it's like a bookend to the episode yeah he is like you are you're not gonna bring anything but trouble mm -hmm. you can't help us because nothing can help us and it'd be better if we can get far away I feel like his reasoning is so consistent. And that's a thing that I love in stories mm -hmm. when everyone just does exactly what they would do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I buy it. I buy it. I'm still mad, but I'll buy it. You don't want Tick to be pulling on any loose ends. And so you got to take care of it for him. And you're protecting the family like George told you to. That's what he's trying mm. to do the best he knows how. Yeah, I can see that. I guess it would be interesting to know more about the character and certainly would have all these uh, sources of knowledge that aren't Christina are being erased. So that's upsetting. Yeah, just even understanding more about what Titus did so that they can undo it or so that they can fight it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So Ruby is still mad because she went down to Marshall Fields and she saw that there was a black girl working for him, which means that yeah. she... Did not get that job. So she gets picked up by by William at the bar. And <laughs> the whole time she's like, mm-mm, it's not happening. <laughs> but then, like, you know, it gets closing time and it's happening. And we know because it's William that this is a, a play from the start. So that's really yeah. upsetting. Also upsetting is William's scarification on his chest. Devil horns. Devil horns on his chest. If he's, like, glamour... I don't know if he's a glamour or like a full-on transformation, I guess. I don't know what the embodiedness differences of those are. But since he has this scarification, there's a chance that it might be something that would repeat in both bodies, if your theory is correct. Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, and I think it depends on what the nature of the change is. As I've been drunk a lot of times... And made bad sexual choices a lot of times, but never have I had sex on stairs. 
There, uh, the floor is right there. The landing is right there. There's so right many. There, the table is right there. There's so many choices, but that would be the least poor of all of her choices, I think. Um, so we're just worried as hell about Ruby. Worried as hell about Ruby. Yeah, I'm worried about Hippolyta, but I think she can take care of herself. She's on it. She's got D with her, though. She does have D, it's true. And she would do a lot, I think, to protect her baby. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I am worried as hell about Ruby. And actually, if we circle back to that in a sec, I am worried as hell about D. Because one of the small bits of this episode with D in it was that she was going over to her friend's house to Mm -hmm. read comics. And her, it's her friend Bobo, who, as we discussed in the last episode, is the nickname of Emmett Till. Who's wearing his little hat again. So she's not just friendly with him and, like, hanging out at a party where neighbors come together and you end up mixed up with other kids and you, you know, maybe barely know each other. But they're actually hang out at each other's house and read comics together kind of friends. And so that says to me... Not only is it going to be in the show, which I figured from last time, but it seems like it might be meaningful and traumatic to Dee in the way that Tulsa was traumatic to Montrose. And so I found myself a lot more worried about her in this episode. So when were you the most creeped out? The corpse banquet? Corpse banquet spider webs not okay still food on the table Uh, mm. yeah i felt like that was a good indictment of museums too like it's the underpinnings of what a museum is and what we'd heard in the museum yeah i think that that was decent for most creeped out and then if we're saying that though most scared scared when they were running toward that panel with the puzzle on it or when Yahima started coming to life. Both of those were the moments where I like really freaked out. I was um the most scared, scared when Montrose threw the bag to Tick. Oh. I was like, that's gonna make you fall, dude. And then um Montrose jumps unsteadily too and is like hanging, hanging off of Tick in a way that is unhelpful. Oh, that was terrifying. Best joke. The kid in the library and his perpetual happiness. That kid in the library. I had another one. The dinosaur? Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. Do they got a dinosaur? <laughs> yelled at the screen. I think the first time I yelled at the screen it was definitely when Montrose put the book in the fire. And then I think... I just sort of yelled, no, 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 at both Ruby and Hippolyta toward the end of the episode. There was definitely a point where I had my mouth open and both of my hands covering my mouth. Like, <gasps> which might have been when Hippolyta decides to go to, to Artem. It was all those reveals at the end. Yeah, the end was really a lot. And did you see the trailer for next week? I did. I have no idea. It, my note on the trailer for next week is what? Next week, Ruby's in danger. Like, I think that seems like that's the plot of next week's episode, is Ruby's in danger and Letty is freaked out about something and I don't know what. I guess we'll have to find out. This episode was story by Wes Taylor for the first time. 
you know, you see like some threads left out to be picked mm-hmm. up later or maybe not. So I'm interested to see if everything kind of gets picked up or if, you know, some of those are just left out as things that others could pick up later. You know, how how much control is the showrunners going to try and at least get a little bit of um, development into every episode? I just like I have no idea what's what's coming. There's just like a lot, a lot of possible directions right now. So I don't want to make any guesses. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what we learn next week. I think we're definitely getting into the mid-season point at this point. So many more paths are open. So many more mm-hmm. roads could be gone down. And it'll eventually start, I hope, tightening together towards episodes 8, 9, and 10. But for 5, 6, and 7? So do you think Christina's going to be the final boss? No, she's the, the one you have to beat to get to the big boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's going to happen with Tree? For sure. Did he have a great time? I want to know about his vacation. Tree's big vacation. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, we'll see you next week. Back to Chicago. Or Arden. So it was originally the National Air and Fuck Us. (laughs) (laughs) Have I told you the story of, uh, like, on PlayStation 2, I had that Wolverine game. And, like... Oh, yeah. Right? So level four is the time level when he has to, like... You have to, like, go back to where, where he became Wolverine. And you have to sneak around and kill all the guards and then escape in, like, under four minutes. I did not beat that game. That is the end. That's all I know about the game. That's the end of the game to me. (laughs) And then there's the timed level and the game stops.